Our next reading is from Matthew chapter 6, um, verses 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Good morning. Well, do you find it hard to pray? The song we just sang, Take It to the Lord in Prayer. I don't know about you, but for me, it was very convicting to realize that here I am singing these words, yet fully acknowledging how so far short I fall in the very words that I sing. And sadly, this is something that many Christians find to be all too true. But why? Why is it so hard for us to pray? If we believe in an all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present God, why would we not pray? After all, he does as he pleases. He's sovereign. All things are possible with him. So we should ask for his help in stuff, right? It makes sense. But there's another problem here, isn't there? As one student uh, that I spoke to once said, if God is all these things, if he is indeed all-powerful or omnipotent, as we say, then what's the point of prayer? Why bother praying if he's just going to do what he says he's going to do? He makes a good point. For churches like ours that uphold the biblical teaching that God is indeed sovereign over all things, it's an important question. How would you respond? What would you say to that? As J.A. Metters in his article, Real Calvinists Pray, says, sorry, I didn't give you the title. There's the title of today's sermon, Passive Pleasing Prayer. We'll get to that. Here is what J.A. Metters says. We pray because God is sovereign. That, that might be one response. And he says, theologically, that's right. But do you live it out? Would your prayers be as strong an argument for God's sovereignty as your arguments? More often than not, for those who recognize God's sovereignty over all things, our prayers don't reflect our beliefs. In our passage this morning, Jesus instructs us on how to pray and how to pray in such a way that demonstrates trust in and pleases our Heavenly Father. 
Now, the Greek word for father is pater, and that's why the sermon is called pater, or pater-pleasing prayer, for the alliteration. And this section of Matthew's gospel is all about prayer that pleases the father. And my prayer is that our prayers would be fueled by an unshakable confidence in, so, in our sovereign God, in our heavenly Father who hears and who answers our prayers. We're going to look at our passage through four headings this morning. Firstly, pray in secret. Secondly, pray without babbling. Thirdly, pray like this with subpoints to come. And fourth, forgive as one forgiven. As we dive into that, how about I pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we hear what your word has to say about prayer, what Jesus, our Lord, has to say about prayer, may we have open and soft hearts ready to respond in faithful obedience. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with the first heading, Pray in Secret. Now, it's been a few weeks since our last sermon in Matthew, and our passage this morning is part of a section which hangs together. So allow me to remind us of how it does. In verse 1 of chapter 6, which we saw a few weeks ago, Jesus introduces the idea of not practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. And this verse, this statement, is the one which governs everything that he has to say over the next 18 verses. And in these verses, he covers three common acts of Jewish and now Christian devotion. So in verses 2 to 4, he talks about giving or almsgiving, as we talked about last, as we saw a few weeks ago. In this morning's passage, he covers prayer, verses 5 to 15. And in the final section, he talks about fasting, verses 16 to 18. And as we saw last time, he compared and contrasted the way that his disciples uh, should give in almsgiving with the hypocrites. You might remember that. Now, kids, it's been uh, a little while and it's a bit of a tricky question, but do any of you remember what a hypocrite is? Anyone? Well, let's go here. Yeah, if you say something that is wrong and you just do it, that's right. Or, or conversely, if you say something that you should do and then go and not do that. That is a hypocrite. And as we saw a few weeks ago, our word hypocrite comes from the original Greek word that actually referred to an actor on a stage. And so Jesus is saying that these hypocrites, they do it all for show. Like all actors, they want people to see them and they want them to see their acts of giving, their throwing their coin into the, the horn-shaped bowl in the, in the synagogue and for them to marvel at how great they are, how righteous they are. They do their acts of righteous for the purpose of being seen and being praised by people. And that theme continues as Jesus moves from addressing almsgiving to prayer. It begins in verse 5. Follow along with us. You see, Jesus calls out the, the hypocrites here once again. The ones who love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, all for the purpose of being seen and recognized by others. The hypocrites want people to be impressed by their public prayers. And again, Jesus says, that they have received their reward. 
What's that reward? The very praise that they are seeking. That is going to be their reward. The people coming up and patting them on the back and saying, oh, what a, what a wonderful prayer. What a great prayer you are. That is their reward. Because they will not receive a reward from the Father. That is a very solemn reminder, yet again, brothers and sisters, of the severity of Jesus' warning and instruction here. If you live for the praise of others, if the purpose for which you profess faith and do the acts of righteousness that we are called to do is for the praise of others, then you will not receive the praise of God. They will be your reward, and He will not reward you. Confess that. The moment that it pops up in your heart, confess it so that you might live, not for the audience of of man, but for the audience of one, of Him alone. So having called them out, Jesus instructs us on how we should pray. We are, he says in verse 6, to go into our room and shut the door and pray to our Father who is in secret. Now some translations have inner room. The inner room was basically like a storeroom. For us up here in the territory, it's probably the one that you would run into in the event of a Category 5 cyclone. No windows, really strong door, really small room, that's where you would go. But the point of Jesus' instruction is not that you must find a certain room in which to pray. As one preacher put it, the secret to this passage is the word secret. That is the contrast that Jesus is making here between the hypocrites and with his disciples. The hypocrites pray in public because they want to be seen. But the children of God pray in secret because they know that their father sees in secret. You see, both pray in order to be seen. The question is, whose eyes matter most to you? Whose eyes matter most to you when you pray? Not only that, Jesus' disciples recognize that the Father rewards those who pray in secret. You see, as His children, we do it for His delight. We pray for His pleasure. Now, there, there is a payoff to all of our actions, isn't there? There is a reward for the things that we do. No pain, no gain, for example. Nobody would choose pain without the gain. Why do you work out? Oh, it's because I like, you know, not being able to walk for the next day. No, you see, the things that we do, the things that you do, even in secret, you do for a reason. You hope that those actions will eventually reward you somehow. So, for example, I don't recall the last time somebody praised me for brushing my teeth twice a day. Oh, well done, Jaya. That's some excellent brushing you're doing. No, I brush my teeth because my reward is pearly whites, lower dental bills, and people not having to stand five meters away from me when I talk to them. What's the reward the Father gives to his praying in secret children? Is it God giving you what you've asked for? Is that the reward? 
Is that what you hope for in your secret prayers? We'll get to that in the next couple of points. Jesus' emphasis here, as it is throughout this first half of chapter 6, is in recognizing that God sees your acts of devotion to him and he is pleased. That is a reward in itself. Well done, good and faithful servant is all we long to hear. Anything else is a bonus. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. Is that enough for you? Are you content with the Father's reward, even if all it is, is His pleasure? You see, that's the foundation of prayer that Jesus lays. In everything else that He has to say after this, we must remember that prayer itself is fundamentally about praying to the one who sees in secret. His pleasure and praise are all that matters. But does this mean that Jesus is banning all public prayer? No. Which brings us to our second heading. Pray without babbling. Kids, what is babbling? Does anyone know? You have a what? You have a fight. Oh, I don't know that definition. Maybe that's one that I haven't heard. Oh, battling. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. It's what Pete the Sock Man does. Yeah, for all of you Wing Feather Saga fans, I'm sure you'll get that. Yeah, babbling, being like, blah, 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 saying like, you know, and just going on and on and on, things, saying things that aren't particularly meaningful. Well, after exposing the heart of the hypocrite's prayer, Jesus now turns to a flaw in the way Gentiles pray, which could easily infect our own. In verse 7, you notice how he shifts here from the hypocrites to Gentiles. Now, Gentiles were non-Jews, and most of whom were polytheists. That is, they worshipped many gods. And often their prayers were made up of chants and repetitive phrases. And they did those in order to get the God to do what they wanted. Do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18? We preached on this a year or two ago in our church. The false prophets called on their god Baal all day with loud cries and with cutting themselves. And they thought that they would be heard. But what was the answer from their so-called god? No one answered. No one paid attention. Verse 29. You see, the Gentiles, Jesus says, they think they'll be heard with their many words. They think that they'll be able to make their God do what they want with their many words. But what does Jesus call those many words? Empty phrases, he says. The Greek word translated as heaping up empty phrases, bata logeo, actually sounds like our word babble. And so it actually has a similar meaning. It refers to the person who stammers or or continues to use the words again and again and speaking without thinking. But Jesus says their prayers are their hot air rising into the atmosphere. They're not adding anything of value or moving the needle on whether God will answer their prayers or not. 
More words does not equal more likelihood in getting what you want. You know, picture the, the big bucket at Leania Water Park Playground. Kids, you know what I'm talking about? The water playground and the big bucket at the top of it? Yeah? There's one in Palmerston too, at the Palmerston Water Park. <laughs> yeah, Palmerston. So if you haven't seen it, if you haven't been there, it's, it's basically just a big bucket at the top of the kids' playground, the water playground, and it's constantly being filled with water. When the water reaches a certain level, then the bucket just tips out and dumps a whole lot of water on everybody. You see, the Gentiles thought that prayer worked like that. Fill the bucket with enough prayers, with enough words, saying it the right way, and eventually God's going to pour out his bucket of blessing all over you. Jesus says, no. That is not how prayer works. Why? Because it makes you think that you can get God to do whatever you want. Pray enough prayers and he'll answer. And it doesn't submit to the fact that God already knows what we need. And that's Jesus' response in verse 8. Your father knows what you need before you even ask him. You don't have to be long-winded in prayer because God is not deaf, nor did he misunderstand what you said, nor is your reputation or particular wording going to somehow change his mind. Simply pray. Because before you even ask, he already knows what you need. That is a confident Calvinist prayer. Well, several questions arise from that, don't they? Firstly, is Jesus against long prayers? This is relevant to us because we are a church that thinks it is important and good for us to pray long prayers together as a church. I can hear some of you asking already. It's important to recognize that Jesus is not putting a ban on long prayers. After all, if you flick over to John 17, you'll see that he himself prayed long public prayers. There's, that's one example. As written there in that chapter, it would have gone for at least the same length of time as the prayers that we pray in our church. No, Jesus isn't against long prayers. The point that he is making in verse, verses 6, 7, and 8 is that he is against filling our prayers with empty words and phrases that display a lack of trust in God. Prayers that, that, that stammer and stumble and keep going and just keep repeating things and that assume that we can bend God's will to ours. Now this is important for all of us to take note of because if you haven't yet, at some point in your life you will likely pray in a group where others hear what you pray. In family devotions, for example, or even just in small groups. And this is also especially important for all who pray in the public gathering of the church. If you're somebody who is worried about praying in public, even in small groups, and you know, worried and concerned about whether you use the right words or the right lingo or whether you sound good enough, and I hope Jesus' instructions here lift the weight of that anxiety. God does not delight 
in unnecessary repetition. Brothers and sisters, the value of your prayer is not determined by its length. Now, as, as Baptists, we're, we probably have some habits that are not as good on this front, and our Anglican brothers and sisters are probably a bit better at it, keeping things short and to the point. And if anything, short and to the point is better. So don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed of that. If, if you feel that way in your public prayers, oh, I don't know what to say, or I'm not sure if I've got enough. No, don't, don't do that. Just pray confidently, knowing that God delights in hearing your prayers, however short they may be. During our internship discussions at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, every week, Mark would pray the exact same thing. Lord, give us wisdom as we think about your church. Amen. For months, literally, that was just every week. That was the beginning of the prayer. I, I remember commenting something to him about it, and he's like, it's a good prayer to pray. I was like, that's right. God delights in hearing and answering that prayer. And you know, the best way to guard against anxiety in public prayer is to simply treat it as private prayer. If when you, are, when you pray in a group or with other people listening, you imagine that they weren't even there and only God was listening, you would have nothing to fear, right? The Father who sees in secret is still the only real recipient of your public prayers. Even if everybody else hears and joins in with them, none of them can answer that, at least not as God. And the more you do it in private, then the less daunting it becomes in public. Just like the pianist who's practiced their piece a hundred times in private, even though they might be nervous during a performance, they will still know what to do. Well, another question that arises, what's the point of public prayers then? As I mentioned before, we pray them so that we can join together in the one prayer. Those hearing and participating in public prayer, they are not an audience, but they are fellow intercessors. When we have public prayers in the gathering of the church, we are all, as, as those who hear it, being called upon not to listen and admire the prayer, but to join our hearts with what is being said and say a hearty amen. To bring up CHBC again, one of the things that I think they do well is to have a culture of everyone clearly saying amen at the end of every public prayer. I want to encourage us to do the same because it reminds us and it signals to us that this is the point of public prayer. We don't just sit and listen, we join with, we agree with, we lift up our own prayer with the person who is praying. The public prayer becomes every hearer's personal and one of the reasons that we have long prayers in our church is because we want to model and encourage a Christian life that is saturated in prayer. As John Onucheka says in his book on prayer in church, prayer is like breathing. If we don't do it, we die. And too often we don't think of prayer as breathing as Christians. 
And what we do in our gatherings, what we do together when we are together as the church will inevitably end up being our personal practice, regardless of what we say we believe. And so as he says in his book, infrequent prayer teaches a church that God is needed only in special situations under certain circumstances, but not all. And so we pray. We seek to to model this. So we seek to pray lots in our gatherings. And we're also hoping to add a more regular prayer meeting to our church's calendar, which sadly is not something that we've done yet. But that is what we hope to do. That is what we hope to grow in, what we hope to model. That the Christian life is saturated in prayer. As Jesus instructs us, we don't want to use more words than necessary. But with that understanding, we bring all our prayers, we bring all our petitions before the Lord. There is so much to pray. There is so much to pray for. And that it ought to characterize our life together. Okay, so prayer should be in secret, but also without babbling and to the point. What else? Well, this takes us to our third heading. Pray like this. If you weren't aware, this prayer in verses 9 to 13 that Jesus gives is commonly called, anyone? The Lord's Prayer. Who he has prayed the Lord's Prayer in some kind of setting, whether these exact words or something very close to them. Now, interestingly, the Lord's Prayer is still recited in our nation's parliament. And as has been the case for a number of years now, especially in Victoria, it is a topic of debate as to whether that practice should continue. After all, most, mo- most of the parliamentarians reciting it, they don't even believe the words. Now, I bring this up because, sadly, the Lord's Prayer is often treated as something that we should memorize and recite, as though Jesus' purpose in giving us these words was to, to give us some liturgy. Now, ironically, it comes close to the very thing that Jesus was condemning in the previous verses. Don't treat the Lord's Prayer as something that you can just keep repeating and then hope it'll produce something for you. Now, there's certainly nothing wrong with saying the Lord's Prayer together. We've done it in our church, and I'll invite you to join me in praying it together later. But look at these first words in verse 9. Pray then like this. This is how we should pray. Not necessarily what we should pray. In this prayer, Jesus is laying down some key principles for our prayers. I think they can be broken down into three key things, which will be subheadings. How do we pray? We pray like this. First subpoint: we pray to our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You notice the hour at the start of that which is further proof that Jesus was not trying to ban all public prayers. But more importantly, God is our Father. It is so easy for us to forget the enormous privilege that it is to address God as Father. It's rare for God to be spoken of as Father in the Old Testament. 
It's even rarer for him to be addressed as father. And even then, not like this. So for us to call this this infinite, perfect, holy creator of all things, supreme being in all of the universe, our father? If we sat down and thought about that long enough, that is a mind-blowing thought. Brothers and sisters, the fact that we are adopted into his family through the work of his son is not something to ever take for granted. Relish and cherish this privilege all your days. As we've seen in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has already referred to our Father being in heaven. It is certainly true that the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent, meaning that He is everywhere. After all, we read it earlier in Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings 8, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. But the Bible also teaches that God is somehow, in some way, specifically in heaven. And funnily enough, Solomon's prayer also says that in verse 30. Listen, in heaven, your dwelling place, he says. Now, where is heaven exactly? Kids, does anyone know? Where is heaven? Yeah? Is that a hand? Yeah? Up. That's a good answer. Heaven is up, indeed. But what is up in the context of a universe? Well, look, God has not revealed to us exactly where heaven is. He hasn't given us the universe coordinates for where it is. We don't even know if it's even in this universe. My money is that it's not. But it is a place. In John 20, 17, Jesus said he would ascend to his Father and our Father. And in Acts 1, 9, we see that that is exactly what he did. And later on in Acts, God permits Stephen to gaze into heaven and to see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We know Jesus has a body. We know it's somewhere. There it is. So we don't know exactly where heaven is, but we know it is somewhere. And the point is not that we should debate heaven's coordinates but to recognize that God rules and reigns over all creation. And from heaven, he decrees his will. So even though, yes, God is everywhere, there is a sense in which he is in heaven where Jesus and his human body is seated at his right hand. Now, when we consider this this glorious picture of God and how great and incredible he is, We can't help but stand in awe of him, which is right. After all, hallowed means, as the CSB puts it, to regard his name as holy. For his name to be honored as holy. The Lord's name embodies his essence And so hallowed be your name is like saying, you are holy. 
And this must rightly shape the way that we come to him. Some say that when Jesus refers to God as Abba, as he does in Mark 14.36, it's equivalent to a child saying Dada. Perhaps you've heard that before. But that is simply not true. The word Abba meant father in Aramaic, the language of the Jews of the day. And the word for father in the Lord's Prayer is simply the Greek version of Abba, which, as I said at the start, is pater. Now, I point this out because, sadly, this idea that we should address God as dada can lead to an unhealthy or totally inaccurate view of God. Yes, it is an incredible privilege for us to be able to address God as Father. We must capture, remember, and cherish the the warmth and intimacy of that truth. But let's not minimize who He is. And let's not minimize the nature of our relationship to Him because we think that it might help us relate to God. Yes, He is our Father, but He is also in heaven and His name is holy. Depending on a range of factors, different ones among us will need reminders of different aspects of who God is. If God feels distant and cold to you, perhaps because that was the kind of relationship that you had with your own father, well then remind yourself of his fatherliness. Bask, soak in this glorious and wonderful truth that our relationship with him is one of warmth and love. One of a child with a loving, caring father. But if you're more likely to be irreverent before God, to treat the relationship that we have with Him pretty casually, then approach Him as the righteous and holy God that He is. Remember to solemnly pray, hallowed be your name. Now this is important because it shapes the rest of our prayers. Which brings us to the second subheading. Pray in humble submission. Pray in humble submission. When you understand that our Father is in heaven, where He rules and brings about His will, well then this next section just makes perfect sense. If God truly is Lord over all things, then praying for His will to be done is natural. If we truly love our heavenly Father and submit to Him humbly, then this is just a natural prayer. And the three components of verse 10, they are essentially saying the same thing. They all express a desire for God's rule and His kingdom to be over everything. Which, of course, when Christ returns, it will be completely But why would we need to pray that his will would be done if he really is sovereign over all things and there is nothing that you can do to change that will? Well, that brings us back to our opening question, doesn't it? I hope that at least some of the time, even though we may not understand it, the simple answer will be sufficient for you because Jesus tells you to. 
As I'm sure we've all experienced in kids, as you probably experience on a somewhat regular basis, sometimes your parents don't explain all the reasons behind their instructions, right? Why I do it? Because I said so. That is another way of saying, you need to trust me. In the case of God, that's going to be the case for many things. He's an infinite God, after all, and we are finite. And also because he's given us everything we need by giving us his spirit and his word. But there is more that can be said about this in particular. The first thing is to recognize that First thing to recognize is that it is true that God does not need our prayers in order to carry out his will. God does not need our prayers in order to carry carry out his will. He is not dependent on us. He's not waiting for that two billionth person's prayer to finally fill up the bucket enough so that he can then pour out what he wants to do. Isaiah 46 verses 9 to 10 are good verses to check out on that front if you are interested or wondering about that. But he has structured reality in such a way that he accomplishes his purposes through our prayers. Now, there are many reasons for that, most of which are for our sake. Our prayers build and cultivate faith in us. God answering our prayers shows us his goodness and power and sovereignty. Our response to him answering our prayers strengthens and deepens our faith and trust in him. All of which is evident in this prayer in verse 10. Your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer, that is an expression of the longing of the child of God that unites their own desires with that of God's. This is a prayer of humble submission. That's why the prayer is sometimes phrased, like in the song that we sometimes sing, let your kingdom come. When we pray this, we are not ordering God to carry out his will. We're not saying, hey God, do your will. And he goes, oh, thanks, guys. Yeah, I'll do it then. We are asking and uniting with him in the desire for it to be carried out. And there is a decidedly future aspect of this, isn't there? God in this moment, after all, is carrying out his will right now. He's doing so by preventing the atoms of your body from flying apart. He's doing so by using his word to sanctify you and to make you more like Christ. In every corner of the universe, his will is being done right now. But there is still time to come, isn't there? Jesus is yet to return. The kingdom of heaven is now, but it is also not yet. And so as we pray this prayer, In humble submission, as we pray in faith and with pregnant expectation, Father, bring about the complete coming of your kingdom. That is a prayer with with hope and recognition that God's will is yet to be fully completed in the future. We unite our wills to his. 
Well, let me ask you something. When God answers a prayer of yours, what are you most happy about? As in when he answers in the affirmative. Are you happiest about the fact that you got what you asked for? Do you delight in answered prayer because God gave you the job or the spouse or the dinner at the jetty? Or does your heart sing because God's will is being done? Of course, you can still be happy about God answering your prayer by giving you what you ask for. I'm not saying be really sad and morose when he gives you a wife or a husband. Of course, rightly so. We are happy about those things when God answers in that way. But right here, immediately after the opening line of recognizing and revering our Father, the first and driving concern of our hearts in prayer should be that God's will be done. Are we too concerned and anxious about getting what we want that we skip over this part completely? Are our desires so focused on the things that we want that we miss verse 10? How do you quell an anxious heart? Jesus goes into more detail on that later on in this chapter. But the first building blocks of doing that are right here. The more aligned our own wills are with God's, then the more we will rejoice in His will being done. This prayer is about doing that in us as much as it is about God actually bringing about His will. That doesn't come easily. We're talking about putting to death desires that so naturally come to us after all. Desires that are constantly put in front of us, that are constantly marketed to us, paraded in front of us, talked about by our friends, put on social media in every form we can imagine. We become duped into thinking that things like a a good-looking spouse or the latest toys or or quote-unquote success are what God means when he says that he knows the things we need. Our vices and our sins climb to the top of our prayers without us considering whether they align with the will of God or not. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. Verse 10 is a prayer for God's will to win in our hearts. So you see, this part of the Lord's Prayer is not about God needing us to bring about His will. It is about us aligning our wills with God to make His will ours. And it's from that position, it's from that posture of our hearts that we then finally come and present our requests before Him.
Which brings us to our third subheading. How do we pray? We pray like this. We pray for all we need. It is only when we recognize whom we pray to with our own desire to see his will done on earth and in our lives that we then bring our requests before him. Now, that's not a law. If it was, I broke it at 4 a.m. this morning while I was praying for Theo to go to sleep. So if your plane is going down, you don't have to think, oh no, what were all the things that I need to do before I bring my requests before God? No, but it's the right posture that should sit behind all of our prayers and our requests. And in general, it's a good rule of thumb for our practice. That is the thinking, partly, behind the ACTS prayers, the ACTS prayers that we often encourage in our gatherings and for our private prayers. Now, kids, we haven't done Praise Factory in a while, but does anyone remember what ACTS stands for? Can anyone sing this song? Anyone? Connor? Do you remember what they are? Hey! Come on, someone. Brayden, you're not a child. (laughs) Adoration? Confession? C, confession? T? Thanksgiving? S? Supplication. Isn't it amazing that these kids know what supplication means? You see, by praying prayers of adoration, confession, and thanksgiving first, we orient our hearts rightly before God before we bring Him our supplications, which is another biblical word that means to ask for something. And God delights to hear our supplications, whatever they are. But what do you notice about the supplications in verses 11 to 13? Sorry, that is a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. But think about it. Well, there are three requests here in these verses. The first is a simple request for God to meet our physical needs, daily bread. And that's the last you'll hear about physical needs. (laughs) Incredible, isn't it? And funnily enough, even though that's the last we hear of it, this is a prayer that we all too easily forget. Whenever I pray for our meals, almost every time I thank God for providing our food for us. Now, it would sound like a funny prayer for an unbeliever because, well, there's a long chain of people from the farmers to the pickers to the packers to the truck drivers and others that have taken our food from its source to my plate. I mean, it can be easy to think, well, actually, you paid for the food and all those people worked hard to get it to you. Why would you thank God for it? Now, such a prayer recognizes that without God, it wouldn't matter how many people tried to get food to us. Last I checked, no human being invented lettuce or cows. In a world where we generally don't have to be worried about where our next meal is going to come from, it can be easy to forget this truth and not pray this prayer. I recognize that I often thank God for the food, but when was the last time I prayed that he would provide it? You see, this request 
recognizes and remembers our dependence on him for all we need to live and to ask him to provide. The second request in the prayer in in these verses is for God to forgive us our debts, which is a term commonly used to refer to sin in Aramaic. And the third is asking for God's help to resist evil. What do you notice about these three requests? Or perhaps more important, what's missing? I, I don't see a single request for things that we want. Now, you might say to me, but the Bible says to, to ask and you will receive. And doesn't Jesus also say that our Father will give good gifts to his children? Yes, <laughs> both of those are true. But look at those verses in context in chapter 7. And you'll see that Jesus is emphasizing the fact that the Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. So if a child asks for bread, a good father does not give them a stone. If they ask for a fish, a good father does not give them a snake. And on the flip side, if a child asked for a snake, what would a good father do? They wouldn't give it to them. At least not a deadly one. I mean, up here, yeah, anyway. You see, the father, he always, always gives good gifts to his children. Always. Always. The problem is not that our heavenly father is stingy or that he is too poor to give us good things. No, the problem is that his children more often than not ask for things that are not good for them. The problem is that we think stones are tasty and that brown snakes would make, you know, really great pets. And so we ask God for them. And more often we don't realize that that is what we are asking for, which is why we get angry when God doesn't give them to us. Brothers and sisters, when God answers our prayers... He always answers them for our good. Always. Do you trust him? Do you trust his goodness in what he gives you? Do you trust that if he gives you bread, he will give you the bread you need? When you realize that this is how God answers prayer, then these next two requests that Jesus models for us make complete sense. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And what could be more important for us than the forgiveness of our sins? And we'll talk about that in the final point. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What could be a more pressing daily need than ongoing growth in resisting sin and the devil and increasing in holy living? You might think to yourself, but James 1 tells us that you know, God himself tempts no one. Why do we even need to pray this prayer? 
Well, as this prayer has already acknowledged, God is sovereign over all things, and that includes, in some mysterious way, over evil. As the book of Job reminds us, even Satan cannot touch God's people without God's permission. So in praying this prayer, even though we trust that God uses trials and testing to produce endurance in our faith, which is also what James 1 teaches, we are expressing our desire that we do not want to set even one foot onto the path of evil. Not one. We want to stay as far away from that as possible. We recognize that just one step on a path covered in moss from the wet season could seriously injure us. Or worse, if that path was at the top of a very tall mountain. You notice the tension in this prayer? That's the tension of trusting the sovereignty of God, yet recognizing that His sovereignty does not mean that we do nothing, especially when it comes to resisting evil. Lord, keep us from going anywhere near the path of sin and evil. Help us to flee from idolatry and to flee from sexual immorality and to flee from all kinds of unrighteousness and disobedience. That's this prayer. And brothers and sisters, we pray these prayers in faith, but I hope you see that we also pray them to increase our faith. We pray like this. We declare who our Father is. And we humbly submit our wills to His, bringing our requests before Him in trust. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together now, remembering all that is encapsulated in it. On the screen or in your Bibles. Our Father in heaven, join with me. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is the prayer of the child of the Heavenly Father. If you're here this morning and you are not a believer, then this is actually a prayer that does not bring comfort. One of the reasons I would tentatively support the removal of the Lord's Prayer from Parliament is because those who do not put their trust in Christ don't realize the judgment that they are calling down upon their own heads in praying this. And that brings us to our final point. Forgive as one forgiven. Notice this last heading is not strictly speaking about prayer. That's because at the end of Jesus' teaching on prayer, he now expands on the second request in verse 12 that we saw. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
Now, this is a very serious warning. Without forgiveness from God, we are left with nothing but judgment. The Bible teaches that our trespasses, also known as our sin, are deserving of judgment before a holy God. His anger burns against it. Without forgiveness, all that is left is a fearful expectation of judgment. But it looks here like Jesus is saying that our Heavenly Father's forgiveness is dependent on whether we ourselves forgive others. Now, in one sense, that is true, but in another, it is not. You see, the gospel is the good news that forgiveness of sin comes through faith in Jesus Christ. We don't earn forgiveness by our good works, not even our good works of forgiving others. Our works do not merit God's forgiveness towards us. It is only Jesus Christ's perfect record of a perfect life atoning for our sin on the cross that opens the doorway to the Father's forgiveness. And we receive it by grace through faith, not by our works. So it is not true that if for a moment in our lives we harbor unforgiveness towards somebody and then die in that moment, that we would not receive the Father's forgiveness. No, forgiveness is given on the basis of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. But it is true that if we harbor unforgiveness towards somebody, And if we never turn and forgive them, then that is a symptom of a much deeper problem. That is the fruit of a heart that has not known the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. Jesus can sound the warning here because anyone who claims to be his disciple but does not forgive others is exposing the fact that they are actually false disciples. This is why you don't want to pray the Lord's Prayer if you are not one of the Lord's. His will being done is judgment on you unless you repent and turn to Jesus in faith. His kingdom coming results in all who oppose him and who haven't trusted in Christ being thrown into a hell for eternity. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've not trusted in Jesus, do so today. Forgiveness abounds in our Heavenly Father. Please come and talk to one of us here if you want to know more about what that means. Because at the very least, it means turning and forgiving others as he has forgiven us. Jesus illustrates this point in one of my favorite parables in Matthew 18. It's the parable of the king who forgives his servants an astronomical, totally unpayable debt. But the servant goes on to withhold forgiveness from one of his own fellow servants who owed him just a tiny amount of money. The parable speaks for itself. It shows us how 
we may extend forgiveness to others. You see, if you struggle with that, or even if right now you struggle with extending forgiveness to somebody, consider this. When you look at just how great the debt of sin that our Heavenly Father is, that He has forgiven us. It is like an astronomical, unpayable debt, hundreds of billions of dollars. How could you possibly harbor unforgiveness against somebody else? No matter how great a person's sin is against you, it is change, coins, compared to what the Heavenly Father has forgiven your sin. If you don't believe me, look at what he has done for you. Our Father, the cosmic creator of the universe, who existed before the world began, who is sovereign over all things and who lives eternally, sent his one and only Son to take on flesh, to live and die, and to be raised again so that you might be forgiven and receive eternal life. That is what it took for your sin to be forgiven. When you gaze at the gospel, unforgiveness cannot be an option. When you gaze at the gospel, the love of our Father displayed in Christ Jesus compels us to do for others what he has done for us. And that gospel is the very news which makes our prayers possible. It is that gospel which gives us confidence that our Father will do what he said he will do because his enemies could not stop his salvation. It is that gospel which gives us confidence that he will answer our prayers in a way that is always for our good because when we look to the cross, we see his goodness to us. It is that gospel which gives us confidence that he knows what we need because in it he has given us what we need most. Because it is that gospel which demonstrates his great love for us. In Christ, we may pray prayers that please our Father because in Christ we become his. Will our prayers reflect what we believe? Let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, our Heavenly Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How great is your steadfast love for us. May we come to you knowing that you see what is in secret 
offering our prayers, knowing that you reward those who pray in secret. May we pray without babbling, thinking that our words might somehow twist your arm, but instead trust and know that you know what we need before we even ask. May we pray in humble submission as you have shown us to in the Lord's Prayer. And may we forgive others as you have forgiven us. Lord, help us to gaze at the gospel, to see your love for us, and to live and pray accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.